2 Samuel chapter 7 this morning. This is going to be the last part of the little mini-series we're taking on the new covenant. Hopefully it's been an encouragement to you. Um, I know it's, it's been deep, but we've tried to, to get these themes and phrases that kind of help us wrap our minds around all that this chapter pertains. The reality is, this to me is one of the five most important chapters in all of the Old Testament. And uh, in order to see that, we've got to see some of those ones that came before. And so we, we've taken the time to really dive down deep into this. And I appreciate your patience uh, with us as we do this. We labor in the Word of God together. Amen. Uh, and so if you found your place in Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, I'm really just going to read the first sentence of verse 14, but I'm still going to have you stand because we need some Baptist calisthenics up in here this morning. Make sure you're getting your exercise. Uh, it's all good, all right? Um, just for one verse, uh, verse 14, really the first sentence again, and it's this. I will be his father and he shall be my son. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word. Gracious Father, that you should hear our prayers and, and even just respond to us according to your loving kindness should absolutely blow our minds. We are so prone to take that for granted that you would uh, be able, that we, we should be able even, Father, just to gather here this morning knowing that your presence is here among us according to your steadfast love and, and we are not, um, as those who are in your presence, immediately recipients of your wrath. It's, frankly, it's overwhelming. <laughs> Father, so much of what is declared to us in the gospel are things that we take for granted. Our, our hearts and minds are really dull. So we ask that you would be pleased to work according to your grace. That you'd be pleased to work according to your mercy, Father, to open our eyes again, to renew our spirits, that we might know your love. That we might know its width, height, breadth, and length. That we might more fully celebrate your love amongst ourselves and in the world. And we ask for your help in this, Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you received a song from me this week in a text message, that means you're on your pastor's texting list. Uh, if you don't like the fact you're on my texting list, apologies, you're stuck now. Um, sorry, too bad. Even if you join another church, I'm still going to text you every week, okay? Um, if you'd like to be, now that I gave it that riveting review, uh, please be sure I have your cell phone number, but again, be warned. Um, the song I sent this week is a song that was penned by John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace more famously, but the song I sent was this, this song called Let Us Love and Sing in Wonder, and, and many of you I know enjoyed that song and were very sweet in your responses, but I want to go over the first stanza of that song because it really just gripped me as I was listening to it. Uh, it says this, it says, let us love and sing in wonder, let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us nigh 
to God. Nigh meaning near, obviously. I want to copy and echo Brother Justin in thinking about um, how much um, of the songs we sing are really rich in doctrine and theology. And I don't know about you, but there's been a sort of an awakening in my life in the last couple of years where I really have begun to connect uh, the doctrine behind these songs with the singing in itself. Call it being Baptist for my entire life uh, and just knowing what we do is sing uh, and just sing the words on the screen. But, but more than that, what we're singing is scripture back to God. And I wonder how many of us ever take the time to recognize what it is we are singing in the songs we sing. Uh, what we need to understand about those songs. Take this one, for instance. I know we don't sing it here yet, but even listening, what does it mean that he's hushed the law's loud thunder? What does it mean that he's quenched Mount Sinai's flame? In what way have we been washed by the blood of Christ so as to bring us near to God? I hope by the end of our text this morning, in our time this morning, we have a better understanding than we do right now of even some of those truths we sing. But before we jump into our text, if you're with us for the first time this morning, again, we've been in 2 Samuel 7, particularly this promise for several weeks now. We've been taking this passage and we've been squeezing it like a lemon. We continue to squeeze it this morning and let me assure you, we have not squeezed all the juice out of this baby quite yet, but we'll have to move on soon. I'm leaving a good 25 sermons on the table for you. You're you're welcome. In fact, I cut one whole sermon out of this sermon this morning, this week. But let me just recap quickly where we've been over these last few weeks. We started considering kind of the general theme of this text, which is God is more faithful than we think. Therefore, our confidence in him should be higher than it is, right? Uh, we should be more confident in God than we are. And, and, and that's a theme that, that hits in a lot of different texts throughout the Bible, but there are key places where this is just the trumpet sound of the passage. Sometimes uh, this theme is a loud trumpet sound, sometimes it's like a, a little toot. But this passage, it's blast of a trumpet sound that, that the truth of God is, that it's, he is far more faithful than we realize and therefore we should be far more confident than we are. Then the next week, we considered the promise of land, seed, and blessing, and, and seeing how the promise of these things are really just ways of referring to the fulfillment of the promise of the covenant. God's people in God's place under God's rule, or God's kingdom established on earth. Then two weeks ago, we considered that God's promise prevails. It always prevails. Specifically, God's promise prevails even when Israel fails. And last week, we considered how we see that promised son in this passage. And thank you to Pastor Justin who received that call at 2.45 a.m. that he would be preaching and delivered a wonderful, wonderful Message. We are reminded that the firstborn son is Israel, called out of Egypt to the Lord himself, established by covenant at Mount Sinai, entering into a father-son relationship. They are to be the new image bearer, the new Adam in a new garden sanctuary as the mediators of the blessings of God to the ends of the earth, just as the Lord promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. 
Well, again, this week, in one sense, we come to the end of our journey in 2 Samuel 7. And and this week, what we're considering is that not only does God promise a better son, but, but God actually, in this verse, is promising a better covenant. In fact, God's promise of the better son includes in it a promise of a better covenant. A new covenant. So let's just jump in. I'm going to invite you to listen and to think carefully. I'm going to invite you, like the Bereans, to judge what I'm saying against the scriptures themselves. So at the end of this, we can all agree that in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord's not just promising a new son, but a better and new covenant. Which means a better way for us to draw nigh to God. Adam, remember the first son of God, he was made prophet, priest, and king in the image of his father to bear the image of his father in all the world. But he betrays his father and transgresses the holy covenant, bringing a curse upon creation at the very beginning of human history. He breaks the covenant of creation. And the rest of the Bible is, it records God's unfolding plan to raise up a new son who will undo what Adam did and finish what God started. In the Hebrew Bible, that new son, as we saw last week, is Israel. That's why the Hebrew Bible focuses on the life of Israel. In fact, we see it explicitly in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. It's stated clearly there. It says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Israel, Thus says the Lord Moses, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son. My firstborn. Okay, the Bible says it, so we believe it, right? Israel was brought into a new covenant relationship with Yahweh at Mount Sinai, and this covenant became the covenant. As we consider the life of Israel in relation to their Lord, to Yahweh, we think primarily of the covenant that they made at Mount Sinai. It was the covenant that guided their worship, Their government, every aspect of their corporate lives together, they they were formed by that covenant. Israel, like Adam, was called to, to mediate the blessings of God to the rest of the world. And yet, like Adam, Israel also fails. Israel also betrays their father, even at Mount Sinai, before the new sun project gets firmly off the ground. As we said a couple weeks ago, they served other gods before the ink was even dry. Well, now I'm going to fast forward because we've covered a lot of Old Testament history already. And we have so much more to cover, but we're going to just enter into David now. Let's say we're going to enter David into the scene. I'm, I'm leaving all sorts of redemptive history for you to think through as you read through the rest of your Bibles. But enter David as the answer now to this problem. Through David's seed will be the new son who brings about a a better covenant enacted on better promises. And that's where we are in 2 Samuel 7. The Mosaic covenant, even at this point in 2 Samuel 7, has been broken repeatedly and often. If, If we even allow for the continuation of the sonship project after the book of Exodus... We have to keep in mind 1 Samuel 8 and what happens there where God's people have clearly rejected Yahweh as their king and their father. They wish to have another, a king like the rest of the nations. Remember that rejection and betrayal. 
Because in the midst of that rejection and portrayal, listen to what God's response is on the redemptive historical level here. The Lord is speaking to David and look at what his response is to Israel's rejection in 2 Samuel 7 verses 12 through 14. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son if he, iniquity, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men, with the blows of the sons of men. God enters into a father-son relationship with David's offspring. Okay, but Lord, what about the covenant? What about the Mosaic covenant? Because listen, what I'm arguing for here is that God, in these very words, is also promising a new covenant. And I'm asking you, To challenge me on that. Thank you for the challenge. Let's unpack it together and see if that's what the scripture says. In fact, this is going to be our argument. Is 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 14 a promise of the new covenant? Well, I believe so and here are the reasons I'm giving you. And then we'll apply it as we come together. First, very quickly, the promise of a new son necessarily implies a new covenant. Because God here in 2 Samuel 7 is promising a new son, that is a necessary implication that there's going to be a new covenant. Where do you get that? Well, let's think about it. We should expect that. Adam enters into the sonship relationship with God. How? Through the creation covenant, right? Israel enters into a sonship relationship via how? The covenant at Mount Sinai. So when a new son is promised... We ought to know immediately that there's going to be a promise of a new covenant. So, first, the promise of a new son necessarily implies a new covenant. The second argument I want to give is a lot thicker than that one. It says this, uh, the promise to raise up David's seed from his body echoes a similar promise in the covenantal context. The promise to raise up David's seed from his body, it actually echoes a similar promise made in covenantal context. What do I mean by that? Well, David is promised that that one of his offspring in this text is going to be raised up from his own body. The expression there is very similar to a promise made to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. There, in Deuteronomy 18, this is what happens. God is communicating to his people the promise he makes to raise up another prophet like Moses from among their brothers. Now, the context in which this is made is very important. In fact, Moses in Deuteronomy 18, he's actually reminding them of when God revealed himself to them in Exodus 19. If you remember, when God revealed himself from Mount Sinai, Israel was hearing the, Lord of the, the word of the Lord as he reveals himself. And what was their response? Well, he records it for us in Deuteronomy 18, verse 16. Remember, he's, he's remembering back to Exodus 19. He's recapping what the response was. And this is what, they, what he says their response was to hearing the word of the Lord on Mount Sinai. They say, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. Now, surely the Lord spoke to them in that moment and said, no, my son, you will not die. You are 
my firstborn, draw near. Is that what the Lord says? Look at verse 17 of Deuteronomy 18. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. So, so the Lord's response to the people saying, please don't let the Lord speak to us lest we die, is, yeah, they're right. They're right in what they say. Which part? All of it. It's good for them to ask this. They are right to ask for this word to stop. They are right that they will die according to it. Now, they haven't even broken the covenant at this point. This was just God's revelation to them at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And so, what is the Lord going to do in the midst of that? Look at Deuteronomy 18.18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. Now, here's what's fascinating. We, we hear prophet, we're thinking Old Testament, and I think we often hear that promise and think he's going to raise up Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, just keep going, Obadiah, and so on. But, but is that what he's saying? Let me ask you, were, were they all a prophet like Moses? I would argue, no, they're not a prophet like Moses. Why? Because their primary role, those prophets of the Old Testament, was actually just to speak the same words that Moses did. They were covenant prosecutors. They didn't bring a new word. They instead said, this is what the covenant says, and this, wicked people, is what you have done. Now, is there a message of hope in the midst of that? Certainly. All of it is pointing to that new prophet that Deuteronomy 18, according to that text, would be raised up like Moses. But like Moses, how? How in the fact that he would actually bring God's son into a new covenant relationship. He would establish a new word, a different word, a word that does not cause the hearers to be full of fear and trembling, but instead invites them to draw near to the very throne of grace. That promise in Deuteronomy 18 is for a new Moses who will accomplish a new exodus for the people of God, bringing them into a covenant relationship enacted on better promises. So just as David receives that promise that Yahweh will raise up his seed, it should echo us back to the language of the old covenant and know certainly this is the promise of a new. So now we go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're on our third argument here. How do we know this is a promise of a new covenant? I would also argue that, that this, this motif of a new house actually implies a new covenant. That's the third thing I want us to see. A new house implies a new covenant. A new house implies a new covenant. Particularly if you zero in on the use of the term house as it's given to us in all of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel, remember, begins with a, with a barren woman and an unfaithful priest with two evil sons. In fact, if you turn to, to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 through 36, you find the word of a man of God who speaks a judgment against the house of Eli. And the parallels between 1 Samuel 2 and 2 Samuel 7 are clear. Uh, for instance, it's mentioned explicitly in 1 Samuel 2 that God chose to reveal himself to the house of Eli. In 2 Samuel 7, it's also clear now he's chosen to reveal himself to the house of David. In fact, that's what we read in verse 27 of 2 Samuel 7. 
For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. So just as he revealed himself to the house of Eli, there is a revelation to the house of David. The ephod is mentioned in 1 Samuel 2, given to the house of Eli. It's now being worn by David in 2 Samuel 7. The problem in 1 Samuel 2 is that Eli honored himself and his sons and had lightly esteemed the Lord. Those are the same words used of David when he explains how he has honored the Lord and lightly esteemed himself in 2 Samuel chapter 6 at the end. But the obvious and most obvious connection is this idea of a house, this house motif. First, second, uh, first Samuel chapter 2 is full of references to the house of Eli, saying this in verse 35. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. By the way, raise up there. That's the same verb in Deuteronomy 18 and again in 2 Samuel 7. Now, it's used here in a very similar context, talking about a house that needs to be built. Here in David, it's the same theme, same motif. Now, the only one who is going to actually receive a house in the book of Samuel is David. Remember, Eli's house is cut off. David's the one who's going to have a house built for him. A house that will not come to an end at the book of Samuel. So what's the point in that? Well, listen, in 1 Samuel 2, you find the Lord makes very clear that the house of Eli was established at Mount Sinai, at the Old Covenant. That's where it was given. So if there's going to be an exchange of houses, if this house is cut off and the new one's going to be raised up, what should you be looking for? A new covenant. Fourth, the structure of the promise implies covenant as well. The structure, if you notice this, just look at the promise itself. What we just read, the one first sentence we read in our scripture reading should stand out to you. 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. What does that sound like to you? Does it sound like I will be their God and they shall be my people? You know what that is? That's the covenant formula. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 31, which is where we find the new covenant promised. When the Lord is proclaiming through Jeremiah a new covenant because Judah is about to go to exile in Babylon. Look at what we read in Jeremiah 31 starting in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which I broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And get it? I will be their God and they shall be my people. The structure's the same. It's promising a new covenant. Fifth and finally, and this is my favorite, the immediate context in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it actually reminds us 
of the fault of the first covenant. It reminds us of the need for a new covenant. The immediate context in 2 Samuel reminds us of the fault of the first covenant. In fact, Hebrews 8 mentions that if the first covenant didn't have any problems, if there was no fault with the first covenant, then there would be no need for a second. But the first covenant wasn't faultless. What was its fault? What was its problem? Well, do you remember, and it's been a couple months ago now, actually four or five months ago. Do you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and 6, before we got to this Davidic promise? In chapter 5, you remember what happens? The Lord breaks out against his enemy, the Philistines. It says that. And that, that theme, break out, it's repeated. And the place is actually named the breaking out. Then in chapter 6, the Lord breaks out against an Israelite man. Do you remember Uzzah? Again, the place is named, the same word, the breaking out. I pointed it out when we were there. The word's also used repeatedly in Exodus 19 with that promise at Mount Sinai about what the Lord will do to the people if they draw near to him on the mountain. He's going to break out. Well, what's my point? I, I think there's an intentional connection here. Friends, at this point in redemptive history, it's a dangerous affair to draw near to the Lord. In fact, David, God's own man, when Uzzah touched the ark that day, was terrified. He says to himself, how will the Lord come to me? And you know what's interesting? When you read David's response here in 2 Samuel 7... He hears the word of the Lord directly speak to him. And what does he do? Does he go and tell Nathan, stop Nathan, please tell the Lord to stop speaking to me. Don't speak to me any longer because I'm about to die. No, get this. It says he goes in and sits before the Lord. He draws near. Now, if you know the tabernacle and the Holy of Holies, you just got to wonder How close did he get? Right? I can't help but wonder. Was he just sitting outside the tent? Uh, To me, that, that declares David understood here that there was a promise of a new son who would enact a better covenant on better promises. Who would give us a new way to draw near to God. And so we've just considered the promise of the new covenant from 2 Samuel 7. Now now I want to apply it, and and I'm sorry to do this. I'm not. I take that back. Um, What I want you to do is, uh, what I want to do is I want to give you some homework. I rarely do this. Don't count Wednesday nights. I rarely do this on Sunday mornings. What we've just examined, everything we've just said, it's the very thing that the writer of Hebrews declares. In fact, Hebrews opens with this declaration that really is the application of everything we've said so far. It's this. Jesus is the promised son who's established a better covenant. That's who he is. Jesus is this promised son who established a better covenant. I know we say, yeah, of course we knew that. Did you not know that? Yeah, it's explicit. He's the promised son. But, but I think... When we hear the words of, of Jesus being the Son of God, even as we read them in, in Hebrews chapter 1, we read that and go immediately to thinking of Jesus as the eternal Son. And there's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, he is the eternal Son, but, but we're missing some things when we do that. 
When Hebrews opens declared that, uh, declaring that Jesus is this promised son, it's a reference, it's not just a reference to his eternality. It's not. It's true, he is the eternal son of God, but, but listen, it's a reference to his sonship. It's a reference to him receiving the inheritance. It's a reference to 2 Samuel 7, that he's the promised seed, the promised son of David. Every promise of every covenant is yes and amen in him because he both fulfilled the covenantal obligations and ratified the covenant in his very own blood. And friends, that's really good news. Now, don't get me wrong, it's good news that Jesus is God. Right, that he's the son of God. But if you don't understand that many of these references we read in the New Testament to his sonship are really taking up everything all of humanity has been waiting for in the entirety of the Old Testament, if you don't see that, you're missing the gospel. Listen, you realize, hear, hear me, you realize it's not good news for you that Jesus is the son of God. I mean, stay with me. I mean, it's beautiful. It's true. It's good. It's not, it's just not good news for you. You know why? Because Jesus was no less wrathful against your sin than the Father and the Spirit. So just saying that Jesus is eternal, just saying that Jesus is God, it's not enough. We have to understand that what he actually did was take on flesh and blood, offer his life as a ransom for many, that he might be raised as the promised son going before the Father in that state to receive all the kingdom promises from the foundation of the world. That he might be given all power and authority and dominion. See, he already had it as the eternal son, but now he wields it on behalf of his people. Now his kingdom is being established. That's good news. Especially when we understand that he's not just the king, but he's the priest who made the once and for all sacrifice for the sins of his people. Which sins? All of them! Let me just encourage you, do this. Here's your homework. Take the week and read at least Hebrews chapter 1 through 8. This is where I had to cut the entire sermon out of my sermon because I wanted to show you this so bad. But please read Hebrews 1 through 8 and survey this sonship theme in Hebrews. Consider the argument of Hebrews that that there is a better son with a better covenant. Focus in on chapter 8 that he is the son who establishes the new covenant on better promises. Why should I spend even just a couple minutes a day reading Hebrews chapter 1 through 8? Pastor Cody, isn't that your job? No, it's not. Well, it's not just my job, but listen, we we ain't Catholic. (laughs) You read the Bible, priesthood of all believers. Here is why it's so important that we understand the biblical evidence for Jesus being the better son who enacted better promises through a better covenant. Because that changes everything about your life. Where did we start this morning? Remember the song? We hear songs like, let us love and sing and wonder, let us praise the Savior's name. 
And the lines that follow are supposed to give the reason why we should do so. Why do we love and sing and wonder? What exactly is it that we're wondering at? Well, John Newton would go on to say, He's hushed the law's loud thunder. He's quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He's washed us with his blood and he has brought us near to God. The book of Hebrews actually just unpacks that. Think about chapter 10. I know we read like 9 and 12 for you already, but you can, there's, we read a lot, so you can read the rest. Think about chapter 10 at the end of that argument. It's the very exhortation that the preacher proclaims. He says, let us draw near to God without fear. That's huge if you're an Old Testament community. Why? Because now we enter to the very flesh of Jesus Christ. There's no longer a curtain separating the Holy of Holies from God's people. It's now Christ's own flesh. And he bids us to come. We enter into the very presence of God. We've got full access to his grace and mercy. What's the extent of his grace and mercy to us in Christ? It's infinite. You cannot exhaust it. And friends, that's why we love. That's why we sing. That's why we wonder. Because what was before a faulty attempt to draw near to God under that law, which actually demanded our death, praise be to God, it's, it's always been a way for God's people to be reconciled through his promise. Now it's been established. In fact, Hebrews chapter 11 states that what they long for, it says, in the hall of the fame of faith, what they looked for, who? Who longed for? Who looked for? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Samuel. The list goes on and on. This long list. The writer of Hebrews makes the argument that they haven't received what it is that we now have. You know what we have? Better promises. And, and here's what we miss. With greater grace comes a higher law. See, now the law of Christ, it's actually a clearer expression of God's own character. That, that law comes to a people as it's written on their hearts by the Spirit of, of Christ with every grace so that they might live into it. So that as we love and sing and wonder, listen, it's not something we just do on Sunday mornings. We don't think that we've, we've come for an hour or two hour on Sunday mornings. We've sung some songs. We've gathered with believers. We've encouraged a few saints. Now we're done. No. It means we, we sing and love and wonder every hour of every day. Because every hour of every day is now his. And it is still too small a price to pay for what we've seen to him. Never, never enough. We can never exhaust it enough. Friends, that's the reality. We've got better promises. It's so easy for us to look at the Old Testament and think, man, how did they miss it? Right? Huh. If I was Israel and I saw that, obviously I would know about the Messiah being promised. Friends, you've got in your very hands what they've seen. You've got in your very hands what first century Israel saw in Christ. 
You have better promises and you still fail to believe it. You still fail to trust it. You still, in all reality, give it a couple hours a week of thought. We think we're better in Israel, but we've received better promises. And because of that, it should encapsulate every aspect of our lives. We truly understand the grace and mercy we've been shown. Even today, even in the midst of this crazy age, friends, you know what? We're recipients of a better promise. And we praise God for that. Would you stand as we close? Gracious Father, you promised it and you fulfilled it. You promised a new covenant enacted and purchased on better promises. You promised a a new way to enter into your presence established by the blood of Christ. And, And we're now possessors of it. Father, what many in Israel longed for to be able to be in your presence, we now have received in Christ. Father, even right now today, we are gathered in the name of your Son. He is present among us. You have been present with us. We've not feared probably once in this building being consumed by your wrath, even though you're still a jealous God. Instead, we're confident. We hold fast to the confidence that you are with us. We hold fast to the confession of our hope, Father, for you who promised you are faithful. You will bring to conclusion that which you have begun in us. What promises? We thank you for this. Pray that you'd help us apply this in our lives so that at every waking day, every waking hour, we would be standing firmly on the promises of Christ our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.